This week, we're going to be continuing in our Advent series as we go through the, the Advent season here at the church. Uh, we're going to be continuing this upside-down Christmas theme that we've come up with, hence the trees, if you're wondering. Um, <clears throat> the whole idea that we've been chasing and, and following through this whole Second Corinthians series before this has been, again, the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. Right, the, how God's values and the way of, of his, his way of working is, is quite the opposite of what the kingdoms of the earth look like. So as we study <clears throat> during the Advent season, we are keeping with that upside-down theme as we study hope, love, peace, and joy. So today, we're going to be studying love. Hope, peace, love, and joy are the traditional weeks of the church calendar during Advent. Uh, But today, we get to study the greatest of these, right? Love. Although Advent and Christmas times are marked by the joy, hope, and ultimately peace that they represent, Christmas itself is a season of love. I hope to be able to make that argument for you today, that Christmas is primarily about love, that the incarnation is primarily about love, and ultimately, the cross of Christ is a love issue. I'm going to argue today that we have then a responsibility to God and also to each other in the church to love. Today I'm going to get help in making that argument from the great apostle John. Now in his first epistle, he makes some famous and incredibly poetic statements about love. Its source, its nature, and its command to us. So let's go ahead and open our Bibles to the first epistle of John chapter 4, and we're going to start in verse 7 today. Some of the most beautiful words uh, in the Bible, in my opinion. As we turn there in our Bibles, let me pray for us. Father God, um, we are so grateful and so glad to be here this morning. Uh, Lord, let us not take for granted the fact that we are able to gather together as a body. We're able to gather together as a people who are beloved, who are called beloved by you. Lord, we ask that during this time you would soften our hearts, uh, open our ears, give me the words to speak, uh, and just let us worship you through the word this morning. We pray for the glory of Jesus above all. Amen. Okay, let's look at verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Okay, so if you're reading along there, we see the word love printed again and again. Six times in those two verses. So the Apostle John is going to, in this part of Scripture, he's making a case. He's stating an argument for the responsibility of Christians to love both to love God and to love each other. He's making a statement, and he's going to argue uh, with, a, with a threefold argument in the text that we're going to read today. So there's three ways that he is going to argue that we should be loving towards each other as well as God. Now before the, addressing the arguments, he's going to lay out, we need to point out that, that he starts with addressing the recipients of the letter in this as beloved themselves. 
the Greek word right there has agape right in it. Agape love. To those whom he has been writing is to whom love is, is being given. To those whom love has been directed. A community, in other words. A community of people who are identified by their status as loved people. The first part of his argument for love is God's very nature. And we see that in verse 7 and 8. God's very nature. For love is from God. John reminds us, as he often does in his writings, that God is eternal. And from eternity past comes his perfect and his good nature, which is characterized by his love. God created love, and all love comes from and through God. Take a moment to think about that. A being, so much the essence of love itself, he not only makes what we call love, but is himself love. Love is one of the highest natures in man because it is a reflection of God's nature. John makes a large and sweeping statement in these verses His statement is that when someone genuinely loves, he has been born of God. Now, this is a big definitive statement that he's making here. Immediately after that big definitive statement is followed by verse 8, the negative of the positive statement. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. That begs the question, what is love then? What is it to know God? John sees this question coming as he led us to it. And he answers in verse 9 and 10. He says this, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. So, in this, the love of God is made manifest. In other words, here is how he made love present itself and manifest itself among us. God sent his only son into the world, and, and he will elaborate on that in another verse. But when he says, so that, he shows us why. He makes his love manifest by sending his son so that we can live. So John is now basing the second part of his argument for brotherly or agape love, on, not on the character of God, that was his first argument, but on God's historical gift. His love manifested in Jesus. In other words, love came to us. The creation of love is in heaven with God, but its manifestation, the manifestation of love happened in the advent of Jesus Christ. He continues in verse 10. In this is love. Again, another big sweeping defining statement. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So what we just read is one of the great truths of our faith. Knowing and understanding that our God loved us first. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Now this is the opposite of worldly based love. Where we discover that we love someone. And and the way that they make us feel. But that in the upside-down nature of God's love, he initiates love for us before we're born. He loves us before 
and during our rebellion. He loves us when we hate him and makes a propitiation or a sacrifice for our rebellion against him. God chooses to love us. This reminds me really clearly of uh, a hymn. Uh, Some of you may know it. It's an old hymn, Tis Not That I Did Choose Thee. That's a song that that we're working on rewriting right now to make it a a communion song. But here are a few of the verses. This seems like it's straight out of the scripture. Tis not that I did choose thee, that could not ever be. My heart would still refuse thee, hadst thou not chosen me. From the sin that stained me, you cleansed and set me free. Of old, you had ordained me that I should live for thee. Twas grace in Christ that called me and taught my darkened mind. The world had else enthralled me to heavenly glories blind. My heart owns none before thee. For your rich grace I thirst. This knowing that if I love thee, you must have loved me first. Echoing the sentiments of John here, we see the eternal and yet perplexing truth that love does not spring up naturally from dead hearts. Love isn't somewhere deep down inside us to be stirred. It doesn't exist there. It comes from God. This is key to the biblical doctrine of depravity. The biblical doctrine of depravity doesn't say that we are all ultimately evil. It doesn't say that. That's not what depravity means. It means that goodness or even the ability to love doesn't spring up from dead people. It is God himself, the creator and the definer of love and the manifestation of love that revives dead hearts to love. And he chooses to do so after he manifests it to us first. That's important. The order of that is important because it means that the only love that we have to offer God or anyone else was the same love that he gave to us. In other words, we give nothing that isn't already his. Let's read on in verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So here's a command to the beloved. God loved us, and in our tiny little way, Our responsibility is to love one another. But as small as that is in light of God's love, he says then in verse 12, No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. This is actually an audacious statement, which we'll go over in a minute. But first, John said that no one has ever seen God. Written by the hand of the man who walked and talked with Jesus... And to whom Jesus said, if you want to see the Father, here I am. So this is not a contradiction, but this should catch our, catch our eye. This is a reminder that God's glory is a real thing. In the person of Jesus, his glory as God is held back from us so that we can experience his actual presence. Now that is the incredible gift of the incarnation. That's actually miraculous. A God whom we cannot approach shields his own glory so that we can have a relationship with him. 
John penned these words wanting, to, wanting us to remember that even though many had seen Jesus, none could stand to see his glory. But I said that this was an audacious statement. To make a strong statement about God's presence, tied together with this statement about no one seeing God, it says no one has seen God, and if we love one another, if we love one another, God's love abides in us, and even more is perfected in us. Two things. It is abiding in us, and it is perfected in us. No one can see his glory, but his glory is seen in our love. That's a tremendous statement. It's seen as we abide. Now, abide is one of those words that we don't use very often, and it's a great word. One of the most beautiful ideas and words in the New Testament. In its simplest form, it means to dwell with. God's love, God's very essence, and a major element of his glory dwells with us when we do this one thing, love one another. That word abide also has a deeper meaning, one that we don't use when we use it today. But the deeper meaning of abide also means to remain with. So not only to dwell with, but to continue to remain in dwelling with. This definition of the word clarifies both God's presence with us and an understanding of what love means. In God's definition of what love is, part of its meaning is something that endures, something that abides. Let's take a moment just to reflect on how opposite that is to the world's definition of love. Love, in, a world, in worldly terms, is primarily a feeling. And that feeling is something that you feel towards something or someone. So it originates and terminates with what? You. And what happens when you don't feel like it anymore? When we adopt the definition of love that the world has, it becomes solely something we feel like. And when we don't feel like it, we stop loving. See, what's happened in the world is that the meaning of love has changed so drastically that it's now completely antithetical to the gospel. The gospel definition of love has to contain abiding and remaining with because it is how God defines love. But if instead my definition of love originates with my feelings and terminates with my feelings, its very core of meaning has to do with me. It revolves around me. Now that is not biblical love. That is not the love that God laid out for us. It's a completely different idea. So this is John's third argument for biblical brotherly love. First, it's found in God, eternity past. God is love. God is the creator of love. God has always been the creator of love, his very core being. Second, It's that God made manifest his love in a physical form in Jesus Christ for us to see and interact with, to make a propitiation for us. But now, his third argument is that God's love abides and dwells in our love for each other. That is a big statement. Our love for each other is part of God's glory. Now, just as a reminder... Who is he talking to? 
He's talking to the beloved, right? He's talking to the beloved community. This is specifically love shown to the brotherhood of believers. Not to say that we all shouldn't love others. But this is very clearly stating that we have a specific calling to love each other. Maybe even a requirement to love each other as brothers and sisters. Because it's directly tied to God's glory. Loving each other then is not just proof of our abiding with God and his abiding with us, although it is. It's also a command. Something that we cannot bypass. Something that we can't write off an excuse for. It's part of a believer's DNA. There's one part of verse 12 that we just read that we shouldn't overlook, and that's that word perfected. It says, in essence, that our actions of loving each other, in our actions of loving each other, God's love is not just revealed or manifested, but actually perfected. It is brought to completion. Again, God is the founder of love. He brought it to us in his son. And in his perfect plan, that love is actually brought to fulfillment in the love of Christians. It's part of his plan. It's hard to overestimate, or sorry, it's hard to overstate the enormity of that. The entire idea of God's love is found completed. Its purpose end is found in the love that we have for each other. That makes the somewhat overlooked statements in our Bibles about serving and loving each other and magnifies their importance by a million. It's no longer just something that we should do for each other. God's glory is at stake. Your acts of love for each other now have eternal significance. Your acts of love for each other then are actual fruit of the cross itself. Do you see how audacious that statement is. Not only is our love something outside of ourselves and something that lasts, our love for each other is actually made holy. So now we have to ask two simple questions. How do we define love? What does it look like? What what does love look like? And second, how then do we actually do this? How do we actually love each other? How do we fulfill this command? Well, first, how do we define love? We can't, as we've already said, allow our preconceived ideas or our preconceived ideas of the world around us to dictate what love is. That'd be a terrible mistake. In other words, to just listen to your heart and create a definition of love based on movies is going to lead us in a very unbiblical and destructive way and definitely in a very selfish way. But if we stay right here in our text that we just read, we already have the clues necessary. We have already seen that God is love. He was the eternal creator of love, so we must let him define it. And our Bibles are full of examples of the outworking of this love. But the essence of love itself was manifested to us in the life of Jesus Christ. Jesus came from glory to a manger. He comes from total self-sufficiency to relying on a young mother to clean and feed him. At great cost to himself. in the completion of that manifestation of love is not even found at the cradle, but at the cross. He came, in other words, to die. He came, he dwelt, he abided, 
He taught, he served, and ultimately he walked up the hill to Golgotha. He came to be, as our text just said, a propitiation for our sins. Jesus himself said in John, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. So by looking at Jesus' perfect example then, we can say that love is, in essence, not selfish, but self-sacrifice. Biblical love, the kind that God desires for us, is seeking the good of another at one's own cost. It is seeking the good of another at one's own cost. The second question we have to ask is, how do we then live this life loving one another? We can't all walk up the hill of Calvary. We can't do that for each other. And furthermore, if we did, we cannot become human from God. We're only human. But still this love, the text told us, is made perfect in us. So what things must we do? First, I would say that we have to rely on God for love. He's the creator, and if we've learned anything so far, it's that love does not originate in our hearts. It comes from outside. We need to rely on God's grace to love each other. This is the first step. Because if you just want to try harder... And, and muster up love for your fellow man, you might as well spit in the wind. Because it's not going to work out well. You don't have that within you. You have to be first willing to admit that you need to rely on God, the actual source of love. And second, we need to choose to love. It's a conscious act. Now, that might sound like a contradiction because I'm talking about this all originating with God and being God's actions, but where there is a command, there is always a choice. Where there is a command, there is a choice. In the act of relying on God for the supply of love, we're already choosing love over hate. And we all know this to be true. We choose to love. Because we all have examples in our minds, even right now, of when we did not choose to love. Our love is a response to his, and God's love was a choice. It was a choice to love undeserving, unlovely rebels. And so ours must be a choice too. That means that our choice to love each other is no longer something that we can wait to reciprocate. We don't love only those that love us. That's not how it works. We love the unlovely because we also are unlovely and deeply loved. The third thing we do need to do, though, to properly reflect his love comes back to that idea of abiding. We need to abide. Not only do we dwell, we remain in fellowship with We remain with the beloved as they endure trial. If you ever really want to love someone, be willing to suffer with them. Suffering with your fellow believers is one of the greatest keys to loving them well. This living out of love has some of the greatest rewards, though. Verse 13 shows us some of the benefits in the life of a believer. 
Let's read verse 13 together. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. So our very confidence before the judgment seat comes from our knowing that we abide in love. Our actions of love give us confidence in our very salvation. This is where we see one of the biggest differences between worldly selfish love and self-sacrificing real love, abiding in love. Again, the life that dwells with others in love remains with others in love. That person has great confidence before the throne of God. And this again goes back to our first point. God is the essence of love. If we live out a life that is characterized by love, we can be sure. We can be sure that love was supernatural, that it didn't come from us. In fact, it was a gift of the Spirit because He has given us His Spirit as a sign and a seal to keep us for salvation. Now, there is a guarantee for confidence that is tangible. If we are doubting our place with Christ, if we can look back, if we are doubting our place with Christ, we can look back to the times that we loved others, when we put others before ourselves. And remember that that love did not come from us. Not to puff ourselves up, to remind us that something bigger than us is going on. Something beyond our meager attempts is working through in our lives. That confidence of, working in, of the working of the Holy Spirit is what Christ offers us. And I believe that he desires this for us, to be able to walk in confidence. I believe he wants his church to have assurance and confidence in Christ. Because if we can walk in love towards each other, in confidence towards heaven, then fear has no place in our lives. Verse 18 elaborates on this better than I can. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Now, if you know your Bible at all, you should be able to argue at this point, doesn't the Bible tell us to fear God? In fact, if you're paying attention, one of those, this, the reading of the law scripture that we read is about delighting in the fear of God. But this says, there is no fear in love. So doesn't that contradict? Doesn't that contradict just what the, the apostle just said to us? To that I would say, yes, the Bible does tell us and instruct us and command us even to fear. And no, that doesn't contradict what the apostle just said. The kind of fear that we are instructed towards is a trembling, quaking awe as we approach God. 
After all, our God is a consuming fire, but he is also love. There are two major kinds of fear in this world. First, there is the kind of fear that our text in John was, 1 John was talking about. That fear wants to hide from God. It's characterized by being afraid of God, wanting to hide from God. It's, this, it's the fear of retribution. It wants to hide from God in the way that Adam and Eve did when they first sinned. That kind of fear is the default reaction to a holy God. That fear is afraid. But not so for the Christian. We don't want to hide. Because why? We know that we are loved. This is the kind of fear the Bible commands us to. We tremble before an awesome God as we approach him. It's very different than hiding. The second kind of fear, the Christian's fear, draws us in. It doesn't make us hide from God. It pulls us closer to him. There's nothing less awesome about God for the Christian. If, if nothing else, we understand more of his awesomeness. There is more there, arguably, to fear. Because he's still the same awesome God, clothed in fire, who speaks and the earth trembles. He's still the same awesome God, whose very words destroy kingdoms and end empires. But we don't hide. Because like verse 16 said, we know and believe the love that God has for us. What better picture do we have of this combination of the awesome power and the abiding love than during the Advent season? We see one of the most miraculous statements of power in the incarnation. Jesus, fully God, becomes fully man, all for love. He loves us so much that it's manifested in flesh. A baby in which all of humanity's hopes are set. That beautiful picture of love and power is the incarnation. St. Augustine says it way better than I ever could. He says, He so loved us that for our sake He was made man in time through whom all times were made was in the world less in years than his servants, though older than the world itself in his eternity, was made man who made man, was created of a mother whom he created, was carried by hands which he formed, nursed at the breasts which he filled, cried in the manger in wordless infancy, he, the word, without whom all human eloquence is mute." I love that. All human eloquence is mute before the living word. As we come together in worship of this most beautiful act of love, we remember, we remember that the word became flesh, that it was broken, that the heart which gave of itself poured out blood on the cross. We take the body and the blood with trembling, but at the same time, we are drawn in because he first loved us. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your mighty work. 
in the incarnation, we are so thankful for your example of what love should look like. We are so thankful for you who loved us when we hated you. We are so thankful that you are the author of love and of all good things. Father, we pray that as we move forward in our worship service, as we take communion together, we would remember how you made love manifest, how you paid the price for our sins by a body that was broken and blood that was spilled. Be with us, Lord, as we continue in worship. Amen.